from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, the story up to now. In late August of 2005, a hurricane called Katrina approached the Mississippi Gulf Coast. The hurricane did severe hurricane damage, blew houses down along the Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Mississippi. It then moved inland and passed about 30 miles to the northeast of New Orleans, Louisiana. It did not directly impact or smash New Orleans. But what did happen at the same time is that the storm surge from the hurricane traveled from the Gulf to Lake Pontchartrain on the other side of New Orleans and burst through the flood walls of three canals meant to transfer rainwater from the city into Lake Pontchartrain. The storm surge tumbled the walls lining those canals and other breaches of the protective system, so-called, in approximately 50 different places across the city, all uh, cooperated in flooding approximately 80% of the city. The uh, Congress, in its wisdom, told the agency that it's built, that had built that system, which it admitted later was a, quote, system in name only, unquote, to try again and gave it $14 billion to, const to design and construct a new improved protective system, which the Corps of Engineers called a risk reduction system. We don't protect nothing. We reduce risk. The initial installation of that system included some pumps along the three canals that connect the city to the lake. A whistleblower from the Corps, Maria Garzino, reported on this show and in a subsequent feature documentary that those, and by the way, the Corps of Engineers, she informed her employers, that the initial pumps for that new system did not and would not work. She had supervised their initial testing and installation. And the word from the Corps in delayed response to those revelations was, well, we had to hurry up because it was coming on the beginning of the next hurricane season, and we figured some protection was better than none. So they installed the defective pumps, which were supposed to originally, the Corps told Congress, last 50 years. Suddenly they were now temporary pumps, and that meant that the Corps was going back to Congress for pretty much the same amount of money that they spent on the temporary pumps to install permanent pumps. These would be, you see, better pumps. Flash forward to two weeks ago, when it became known that some of the new permanent pumps 
supposed to last, well, permanent, 35 years, were corroding and were corroded after just five years. And here we are. It's like the Corps of Engineers doesn't get what you need to do to have working pumps. Now, this is an agency entrusted by our federal government with the responsibility for building harbors, canals, dredging rivers, building dams. They seem to have a lot of work to do with water and certain metallic materials. And yet, when the uh, corroded pumps were discovered and made public, the Corps' response is, we're going to have to do some research and find out why this happened. They've been working with water and metal materials for the last hundred years. Their motto, as I've reminded you more than once, is, let us try. That's one story echoing from the first decade of this century right up to today. The other big one, next. Hello, welcome to the show. Down here we're bound to change And I said I Never count your chickens For the cracks begin to show So we, we live In plague and party common fright Knowing those Little pills will remain On the bedside table at night For all this talking Talking about the We'll hit our eyes up again Talking Talking about the water We'll hit our eyes up again Again In our lives Each day will come and winds will go but they don't scare us like the mediocrity we have built down below us and times were would stay and raise a hurricane but we know nothing's different nothing's changed in paradise lost again it's all just talking
This is the show, and this week we uh, had the pleasure of seeing an awful lot of uh, writing by people who had uh, publicly taken a position regarding the Iraq War, given the fact that it was this week the 20th anniversary of shock and awe, the beginning of that war. Um, a lot of people were uh, either reevaluating what they had said back then in the light of subsequent events or doubling down or doubling up. And it struck me that uh, it, it might be a good time to um, once again focus on what we didn't know and when. So um, I uh, saw a piece written by um, my next guest here on the program which uh, was a sort of uh, adventurous tale of getting or trying to get to Baghdad at the beginning of the war um, by a uh, respected and adventurous correspondent who reminds us, uh, if we need any more reminding, we should, of the difference between what most so-called reporters do, which is repeating, and what uh, a hearty few do, which is actual reporting, going there and seeing for themselves. He's Peter Moss, who's written, uh, among other things, for the New York Times and the New Yorker, currently with The Intercept. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's great to be on your show, Harry. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about uh, the more current uh, piece in a moment, but the one that you wrote that uh, has remained in my head for uh, years now was a, a piece you wrote, I believe, for the New Yorker, about the toppling of Saddam's statue. So that was a story that actually was published in 2011. So, you know, eight years after the invasion culminated with the top of the statue in, in Firdos Square in Baghdad. And I was at Firdos Square in Baghdad uh, when that happened. I had kind of as, as you know, war correspondents, luck would have it, um, had been following the battalion that kind of, crashed into Baghdad and, and tore down that statue. And I didn't write about that event that day, the toppling of that statue, mm -hmm. you know, for years until eight years later, because when I was there at the time, I, it was kind of a, a jokey thing almost. And, and to, you know, some of my other colleagues who were there, they had the same feeling. This, this was, you know, like a, 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 sidelight, uh, just something that, you know, soldiers did, but um, it wasn't an important event. And so I didn't write about that toppling at the time. And uh, because I didn't think it was so important, I, I was unconnected literally to what was uh, being seen of the war by vast numbers of, of Americans and others, because I wasn't watching TV, I was there. Hmm. So I didn't know at the time that this event was even being broadcast live, and I didn't know that it was being repeated ad nauseum uh, in America particularly, and was being taken everywhere, particularly in the halls of power, as a signal major event that showed that Iraq was liberated, Iraq was free, the invasion, the war was over. It was a great American triumph. I had no idea that this narrative uh, was immediately taking place and the visual of this statue being toppled 
was kind of a foundation of it. Mm. And so it was only kind of once I got back to the U.S. and realized that, oh, this was a bigger thing, um, that I, I began to kind of, you know, think that maybe I should write about it. But it took a long time, actually, to reach out to everybody who was involved in it, the Marines, the journalists, the editors, the academics who had studied it, to really kind of get a 360-degree appreciation of, of what happened and why that day. What I think Americans saw or think they saw was a rabid crowd of Iraqis um, surrounding the statue and uh, pulling it off its pedestal. Was that an accurate reflection of what you saw there in the square that day? It, that was, no, not what, um, you know, I saw and and what, you know, people there saw or experienced because the square itself was fairly large and there were a lot of streets leading to it. And if you kind of zoomed out from some of these close-ups that everybody was looking at of, of some Iraqis who were there, the square was largely empty. And also perhaps, let's say there were a couple hundred, 500 at peak people in the square during the toppling, as many as half were journalists and, you know, Marines who, you know, weren't on point, you know, with their, their, their weapons uh, pointed at, at um, uh, you know, nearby buildings who were just kind of milling around in the crowd. So you did not have a large crowd of Iraqis there. And what you saw with some Iraqis who were, you know, sledgehammering the, the, the base of the statue and, and celebrating its, its toppling was just a handful of Iraqis, really. But they occupied the entire frame of the pictures, the videos that, that people in America were seeing. So it did seem like, oh, my gosh, uh, there, there are all these Iraqis and they're all so happy. It was a handful. Mm. And they, they didn't represent... Um, by and large, what was going on in the rest of the country, even in, in the rest of Baghdad, even a few blocks away where there was still fighting and looting had already begun. Who was actually doing the, most of the work on the toppling? Was it Iraqis or was it Marines or is it a, a, a combination? Well, the, the, the phrase, the work, um, is, is something you kind of need to unpack um, in terms of you know who was doing the work on the toppling because... The, the work in, in, involves a, a, a lot of actors. I mean, it involves, you know, obviously you saw um, some Iraqis with a sledgehammer in the initial phases of this toppling, kind of sledgehammering the, 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 the pillar at the base of, of, of the statue. Um, and then you saw a little bit later, not too much later, some Iraqis, there was a rope that was thrown around the statue itself, and they were pulling on the rope unsuccessfully. Um, and then, you know, finally, what happened in terms of how the statue was actually taken down, of course, and I think somewhat famously was, you know, a marine tank recovery vehicle that had a crane uh, attached a chain to the top of the statue and then pulled back and the statue came down. And that was, you know, a marine vehicle that did it. It was not literally in the end. Iraqis who tore down the statue. It was it was U.S. Marines uh, with a tank recovery vehicle who did it. But then, a lot of the work in terms of the toppling um, was 
I guess the word instigated is is probably right um, by the journalists who were there and not in the sense of journalists telling Iraqis to do anything and not even journalists kind of, you know, intending um, for anything that they did to uh, have an impact on events, but journalists who were there and, and their cameras, particularly photographers and video cameras pointed at the statue, actually drew people there. Mm. And you can tell, I kind of forensically went over all the video of this event, that when there are journalists at the statue um, taking their pictures, you know, shooting their their, their, their video, um, there are Rockies there and they are very excited. But when the journalists kind of, some of them gotten their pictures and, you know, moved on to other things, uh, Iraqis also started to move on to other things. And it's actually a, a, a phenomenon that's not unusual. You know, where cameras present themselves, where cameras are aimed, uh, people will often be drawn to that and react to it. And then you get events like this, which are, um, in the words of, of one, you know, American historian, pseudo events that are kind of affected by and sometimes, you know, created for the benefit of cameras. Now, uh, as I recall your piece, because it, it, it rang so true for me in a completely different context. I, I did a, a talk at the National Press Club after the flooding of New Orleans, and I, I cited your piece as uh, reminiscent of what we saw, or what I saw in the aftermath of the flooding of New Orleans, which was that the first glimpse of an event seen by editors and producers in New York um, becomes the template for all future coverage, regardless of what may become public knowledge in subsequent days, weeks, or months. And every piece of reportage about it going forward has to um, reinforce the original template or it's ignored. You suggested in in the New Yorker piece that uh, some journalists on the scene in the square were saying to uh, editors and uh, producers in New York or wherever their institution was headquartered, uh, let us pull back and show that it's not a big crowd of Iraqis toppling Saddam's statue and uh, that the response was, no, we're watching CNN, we want that story. Do I Do I recall correctly? Yeah, the phrase that you use is a really great one. Um, I think it was original template. Um, Once original templates, and whether we're talking about New Orleans and Katrina or whether we're talking about Baghdad and Firdos Square and, you know, all kinds of of different um, historic events, once an original template is established, it can be really difficult to push back successfully to show that actually this original powerful template um, is inaccurate, particularly when that, you know, template uh, not only has the support of, you know, news organizations, but particularly has the support and serves the interests of of the government itself. Mm. And so with, you know, with respect to what happened in in Baghdad, and and this is one of the things that to me was, was, you know, revelatory because I hadn't investigated it before I really kind of got into um, working on this story, is that I knew that the journalists, because I talked to them, they were friends of mine or others who I wasn't friends with, but um, 
got in touch with afterwards to find out, you know, what their experience of Theodore Square was. Hmm. A lot of them, um, you know, did not think it was a, a serious, important event. And and there was one in particular, a photographer, um, a photographer for Newsweek, who was on his satellite phone, standing in Theodore Square, talking with his editor in New York, um, while the statue, kind of this two-hour-long process was going on, being broadcast live on American television. <laughs> and and the editor said, you know, like, why are you talking on the phone right now? Why aren't you taking pictures? And the photographer, um, who I quoted in my story, Gary Knight, a, a fantastic, amazing photographer, um, you know, said to the editor, well, it's just, it's not an important event. There's so much going on here. This is, you know, soldiers, you know, have been taking down statues of, of Saddam across this country or placards from the first day. It's not a big deal. There's a lot going on elsewhere in Baghdad's more important. And, and the editor said, look, I'm watching this. This is the, the, the big news event. Your job is to take pictures. Get off the phone, take pictures. Mm. And this was something that was re- repeated, you know, in conversations uh, between a number of photographers and writers who were in, in Baghdad and their editors back home. And one of the things that I did for this story is, like, I, I, I tracked down some of these editors. And, and, and one of them, uh, a CNN editor who spoke to me, was in charge of the control room at CNN that day. And it was, it was a fascinating conversation, and this, which relates directly to kind of this establishment of the original template and how it gets established. Um, you know, is the tail wagging the dog or, or, or not? Mm-hmm. And, and the editor um, was saying, you know, look, we knew that the, the Marines were going to be, you know, entering Baghdad that day. And all the journalists were at Firdo Square because the hotel they all had been corralled into during the invasion by the Iraqi authorities, the Palestine Hotel, was right at Firdo Square. <laughs> so they had their camera equipment already there, already kind of broadcasting live before the Marines arrived. The, the Iraqi security services had kind of vanished overnight because the Americans were, were taking full control of the of the city at the time. And so, you know, this this um, editor, Wilson Surratt, um, who I also, you know, quoted in, in, in the story, explained to me that, you know, we were looking for an image that would express the arrival and, of the Americans in, in Baghdad and, you know, the liberation of the city, the liberation of the country. And we had our cameras at Firdo Square, and there was a statue of Saddam there. And we just we knew that this was going to be the image, the moment that we were waiting for. Mm. The Marines coming into Firdo Square, liberating Firdo Square live on, on television. And <laughs> so the moment that the video monitor that he was watching in his, you know, whatever dozens in his control room, the moment the video monitor showing Firdo Square um displayed the arrival of the first american military vehicles he immediately went to it because that was the image that he was waiting for the americans coming to Firdo square and 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 liberating it hmm. and the, one of the ironic things that that he told me that also you know confirmed el- elsewhere was that you know cnn had other correspondents in other parts of baghdad with the u.s army on the other side of the river for example and one of them martin savage um was ready to report on you know violence and looting that he was seeing going on but he wasn't allowed to because they decided this is the image the firdo square image and that's what we're going to and so it's a it's a decision an editorial decision made by somebody in atlanta 
um, you know, that determined for CNN at least, and I think, you know, the thinking was fairly similar amongst other editors in America, but determined that this was the event of the day, that not only, you know, would be broadcast live, but, you know, continuously for, for hours and then repeated kind of ad nauseum after it. Um, if, if you had asked, you know, journalists at Firdo Square, uh, you know, what do you think should be broadcast? Um, you know, they would have said, I think most of them, well, okay, fine, you know, the statue falling and being toppled is, is an interesting visual event, fine, you know, broadcast that for a little bit. But there is so much else going on in this city that is uh, of greater importance, and, and that's what you should be telling your viewers about. But that's not what happened. Hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, adventure in uh, getting to Baghdad in the first place at the outset of the war. Well, I was what's called a, a unilateral journalist. Um, the American military, you know, somewhat famously before the, the, the invasion began, um, decided to have a, a program of embeds. And mm -hmm. that's where they choose a certain number of journalists, I think maybe a, a couple hundred overall in the end, um, to be kind of dispersed with different military units. Journalists would wear military uniforms, their transportation and their food and everything would be provided by the military. They'd move in military vehicles um, and, you know, they, they would report on what their units uh, were, were doing or what the commanders of their units would allow them to broadcast or transmit at the time. Um, but there were a great number of journalists, um, you know, who were not, um, you know, provided with or did not want um, to be embedded with the military because you have no control if you're embedded with a military unit over what you see. You see what, you know, that unit is doing, but you can't go somewhere else on your own in your own vehicle. And, uh, it's, it's a very restrictive way of reporting. So I was one of these unilateral journalists who, you know, I went to Kuwait City, uh, rented um, an SUV from Hertz, uh, Hyundai um, SUV. And then on the, you know, uh, pre-dawn darkness of, of March 20th, when, you know, the land invasion is happening, tried to cross the border uh, with the photographer I was working with, Ronald Vanderstock, who was in his own vehicle. And, and our first attempt, it was still dark. It was like 4 a.m., American soldier from the darkness, uh, as we were kind of actually driving across the border, he started shouting at us, you know, turn your lights off, you know, stop right now. And, and we stopped and, and it camouflaged on his face. And he's like, get out of here. You know, I almost shot you guys. Huh. So we had to turn around. And then, um, you know, journalists, unilateral journalists were not allowed across the official border points um, by the U.S. military because they didn't want unilateral journalists who they can control uh, reporting. Um, and so what what Laurent, um, who was kind of driving in front of me, did eventually was there was like an empty area um, that he drove across, and we assumed it was probably mined, but, um, you know, he walked around it first and didn't see any clear evidence of that, and then he drove slowly and, and told me to drive about 50 yards in his tracks behind him, so he was taking most of the risk. Mm. And we crossed into Iraq that way. And, and there were about a dozen other journalists total who kind of had managed to sneak across, some of them kind of pretending to be U.S. military, wearing uh, military clothing um, to get across these checkpoints where the, the U.S. military was flowing over the border. And then, long story short, for about not even six hours, um, we kind of completely were on our own. And we 
drove down a road towards Basra, which is the second largest city in Iraq, mm-hmm. um, just about 50 kilometers from, from the, 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 the Kuwait border, because the Americans right at the border that we had just kind of all illegally crossed told us that there were other American units ahead of us. But we started driving down the road towards Basra, and, and we noticed that there were Iraqi soldiers with white flags trying to surrender to us. And so we realized, <laughs> no, there hadn't been any American um, or British uh, troops down this road. And so we immediately turned around and headed back. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, so luckily we weren't shot or captured by Iraqis. And luckily, as we sped back to the Americans, um, we weren't shot by them either because, you know, we were a bunch of SUVs coming at them at high speed. <sighs> they recognized us, fortunately. Um, other journalists in the same kind of situation a day later actually had gotten shot and killed by by, by Americans wow. who didn't recognize them. So we we then um, kind of unofficially just followed one American unit after the other, um, hopscotching um, north towards Baghdad. Hmm. How long did you stay, or how long were you in Iraq, all told, during the course of the war? For the invasion, I was there for a couple of months. I left, I think, in July, so I mm. was there for whatever, March, April, mm-hmm. uh, May, June, and I could return in July. And then I made um, two or three other trips back each time for about a month, um, 2004, 2005. Um, and then I, I, I got married, and one of the stipulations was that I, I wouldn't go to conflict zones anymore, which I was... For the stipulation, I was very pleased with actually. So I had, I had, you know, since the 1990s, covered different conflicts, starting with the war in Bosnia, and um, I've been very fortunate in in kind of, you know, not being not being hurt. But I'd seen colleagues of mine, um, you know, injured and killed, and mm-hmm. obviously a lot of civilians as well as soldiers, and so I knew the dangers, and and you know, it's going to catch up with you at some point. Mm-hmm. So I was I was very aware of just the peril and mortality of, of, of what I was involved in. And, and so, um, you know, I was, I was, I was ready to, to, um, you know, take it down a notch or two. Finally, you said um, to me, I don't know if we were yet uh, on the air, but you said you had of uh, strong opinions about that war Um from your time there and whatever else you've gathered over the intervening years, how how would you describe those feelings? I guess fury at what happened, which was an illegal invasion that uh, you know caused the, the 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 deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million um, Iraqis, as well as you know, five thousand or so Americans. Um, destruction, you know, uh, physical mortal, um, psychological of, of, of a country, um, fury that that happened. But then that kind of you know, fury, and this is not a position perhaps to be in, is kind of, you know, now has a, a, a or has accumulated in the last 20 years a new le- level of fury, I suppose, over the fact that that original outrage is, is, is not really recognized to the extent that I think it should be by the country that's responsible for it, America, and in particular, uh, the people, the leaders, political and military, um, who were responsible for it, um, themselves have not been blamed for it, um, have escaped any blame, and in fact, and maybe this is even a third level of fury, um, have been rewarded for it, um, have not suffered 
forget about blame. Um, have not suffered any inconvenience professionally and have, you know, just continued to um, ascend, whether it's in journalism, uh, whether it's in the academic world, whether it's in the political and military world. Um, there has been no reckoning, no consequences for the people who were responsible. And and maybe this is now a fifth level of theory. Um, when I come to anniversaries like this, no prospect of that happening anytime soon, particularly when you look at some of the stories or many of the stories that have been written on this anniversary that are, as you, know, you mentioned at the beginning, um, denying the essence of what happened or trying to excuse it away. Um, you know, we are, I feel, um, in some way, you know, I, when I hit anniversaries like this, I, I feel that I'm, 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 I'm in a very small number of people with these um, sensations, um, that we are a defeated country, but we don't know it, and we certainly don't act like it. You know, there were reckonings uh, when there were colossal military and, and you know, human rights abuse failures in other countries. There are reckonings that defeat imposed on them. But, you know, America does not regard itself and certainly is not engaged in the world in any way as a defeated nation. So we feel no pressure to really examine um, in any significant way. I mean, even something as milquetoast as a truth commission what happened, why, but particularly who is responsible and and um, they should be named and recognized as being responsible. And, you know, obviously this begins with former President George W. Bush, Vice President Dick Cheney, and, you know, many other people around them who are still alive um, and who are, you know, very cherished and honored members of, of our society, strangely. Doesn't the Army, as a practice, do uh, an after-action investigation and report on its own uh, efforts in uh, major things like wars? There are after-action reports on, you know, the invasion, on, you know, various different phases of the war. Yeah, they've got plenty of those. And, you know, you can you can read yourself to sleep for the rest of your life um, <laughs> reading them. But And I've, 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 I've read a, a, a number of them. You know, some of it's revealing. Um, it's useful if you're trying to piece together yourself what happened, why, who the key people were, what some of the mistakes were. I mean, these documents are useful, historical documents, but are they truth-telling, consequence-laden documents? Uh, no. Um, and and I, I, I don't really think they're intended for that either. Hmm. Well, I guess the only consequence that uh, occurs to me is Judy Miller is no longer at the Times. Yes, but not even for the reasons that she should no longer be with the New York Times. Mm. <laughs> uh, Judy Miller, New York Times correspondent who wrote some of the, the most um, kind of, you know, fictional stories um, for the New York Times. However, you know, is just one journalist. Mm. And there were so many others and there were editors and, and it's very easy um, and it's too easy. I'm, I'm both, I mean, my career has been mostly as a writer, but for the last decade, I've also been an uh, editor. I'm a senior editor at, at The Intercept now. And and there is a huge responsibility that editors have and should bear for um, errors that 
reporters make. I mean, there's a reason they're editors. It's so that writers don't just immediately publish. And mm -hmm. and I, you know, I'm also a writer, and God forbid that you know there would be no editor editing me. And and the editor's job is to make sure that you know reporters write well-founded articles. And and if they don't, I mean, yes, blame the the reporter, but you also should blame the editor. Um, that is really their their principle. Uh, you know, you have one job, <laughs> um, to, uh, their task. And so I think pointing the finger just at Judy Miller um, is too easy, too small, too convenient. Peter Maas, thank you so much for uh, sharing your Iraqi experiences on this 20th anniversary. You know, there are people just coming of age, just learning about all this. And uh, I think it's important to remind them of how far off the rails we really went. Thank you again. Thank you, Harry. Thank you very much.
There's another pump breaking. Uh, no, it's a crypto winner now, ladies and gentlemen. Do Kwan, he's a prominent crypto founder, was behind two digital currencies that crashed last year. And you didn't know that? You didn't notice? He was charged with fraud by U.S. prosecutors this week, shortly after local authorities arrested him in Montenegro. The arrest, confirmed by local government authorities, capped a months-long search for the crypto entrepreneur. He once had a devoted fan base but lost the faith of many investors after last year's crypto meltdown. They're so easy to disappoint. Authorities have believed that Kwan, the South Korean developer of the Terra USD and that's US dollar and Luna cryptocurrencies went into hiding after his home country issued an arrest warrant for him last September. At the time, he denied he was a fugitive in a tweet, but since then his one active Twitter account has fallen silent. This is from the Washington Post. Montenegro's inter uh, interior ministry said this week it apprehended Kwan and brought him and a fellow South Korean citizen to a prosecutor's office in the capital city on charges of document forgery. South Korea had reportedly asked Interpol to issue a red notice allowing other countries to provisionally arrest Kwan. Later in the day, prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, home of Mr. Bragg, made public an eight-count indictment against Kwan in connection with his cryptocurrency business. It charged him with various forms of fraud. And the biggest U.S. banks have not stepped forward to welcome homeless crypto businesses scrambling for banking services after fleeing the wreckage of those three banks that uh, went bye-bye a couple weeks ago. Coindesk.com asked the top 20 banks by assets if they were taking on crypto customers, especially these businesses that recently lost their banking homes in the recent carnage. Most of them remained silent on the question, some including J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of New York, Mellon and Morgan Stanley declined to comment. Others were open about saying they aren't comfortable taking on crypto clients. KeyBank, a regional lender in Ohio, is around the size of the institutions that crypto clients have been accustomed to using. A spokeswoman there said the bank is focusing on those that meet its, quote, moderate risk profile. Crypto-focused firms do not fall within this category at this time, she said. And Citizens Financial Group, among the larger regional banks, said it doesn't have, quote, direct credit exposure to crypto digital asset businesses, and it's not something we're looking to get into at this time, according to a spokesman. They both like to say, at this time, as if this is going to change at some other time. Maybe they're waiting for crypto spring. A little news about microplastics. Traces of nanoplastics, they're smaller than microplastics, may interfere with the stem cells from which tissues and organs generally originate. This would disrupt the early stages of development in chicken embryos. That's according to a new study published in Environmental International. 
The team utilized fluorescent microscopes to observe how nanometer-scale plastic particles were injected into chick embryos and how they traveled over the embryonic gut wall into their various organs. One in four of the chicken embryos had abnormally small eyes due to the nanoplastics. This according to interestingengineering.com. In news of this smart world, Sotheby's, the auction house that began showcasing NFTs a couple years ago, appears to have brokered what could be its most disappointing digital art showcase yet. The auction of 58 lots yielded middling prices at best. The top-selling piece got $54,600. That was below Sotheby's estimated closing price. Between $75,000 and $170,000. Quite a bit below. It was a far cry also from the whopping 11 Point eight million dollars a single CryptoPunks NFT fetched during a June 2021 Sotheby's auction. NFT sales have been down for several months amid a prolonged bear market, but NFT sales managed by top auction houses are generally reliable in helping artists land premium prices. Not so last week. And all of MSG v- properties, they own venues in New York City like Madison Square Garden, Radio City Music Hall, as well as the Beacon Theater and the Chicago Theater in Chicago. Now they're all using facial recognition to clock and eject certain audience members. MSG and its affiliates started using the technology back in 2018 for scanning purposes, but since 2021, the facial recognition tool has been used specifically to suss out any banned individuals from the premises, as well as, as any employee of law firms with acti- active cases against the media empire. Anyone entering the premises is fair game to be scanned, ejected, and banned. Scanned, ejected, and banned. James James Dolan, proprietor of Madison Square Garden Entertainment, has a long history of ousting his detractors. The current usage seems to be laser-focused on lawyers, representing people who have cases against MSG for one reason or another. Like, they don't like James Dolan. Representatives for MSG alleged that all potentially impacted parties had previously been apprised of the policy. It seems to be in effect for all employees at firms involved in litigation, not just the attorneys who are directly involved in those cases. The ban, ironically, has led to more litigation. And now, the Apologies of the Week. A Dallas man convicted of capital murder in 1998 has been freed after new DNA testing exonerated him, authorities say. Martin Santillan was accused of fatally shooting a man in 1997 after trying to rob the victim outside a nightclub. Santillan, who was 23 at the time, maintained his innocence while serving a life sentence. A review of his case that started in 2021 used newer DNA technology 
It identified someone else who has since been arrested in Colorado. The Dallas County District Attorney's Office apologized for a miscarriage of justice. Quote, it remains our job to correct past wrongs, which is what the team in my office worked tirely to do, said the DA. We owe it to Mr. Santillan to clear his name fully and completely. I sincerely apologize to him and his family for this miscarriage of justice, and I'm proud to say that today justice has been done for him. Prosecutors say they will continue to produce a case against the real shooter. We should call OJ. He, he, he's good at that. A variety of celebrities are calling on Candace Owens for criticizing a Skims advertising campaign featuring a model in a wheelchair. Owens sparked outrage on social media for blasting a 2022 campaign for Kim Kardashian's Skims shapewear brand that included a model in a wheelchair to promote adaptive clothing for those with dis disabilities. Owens called the campaign ridiculous and, clared, and declared she was tired of this all-inclusivity thing, quote-unquote. Christina Applegate, who has multiple sclerosis, took aim at Owens' comments on Twitter, praised certain brands for representing the disabled community in their collections and campaigns. Quote, this Candace person making comments about companies who we need, who see we need help, it's effing gross. I thank Skims and uh, some other brands for seeing us. Christine Applegate said. Candace Owens, do you know when you've seen pictures of me how effing hard it was to get my clothes on? A team has to help me, so I'm excited for accessibility clothing for me and my community. No rage if Camus wants to get on the phone with me to be educated on being disabled. I will not come with anger. I will come with love because she needs to hear that, unquote. Christina Applegate, other celebrities and influencers on Twitter were equally flabbergasted by Owens' latest comments. Owens responded by explaining that she and the team at the Daily Wire, a uh, conservative show, didn't know the ad featured adaptive technology for those with disabilities. She made, quote, an honest mistake. If you felt personally targeted by this mistake, I apologize to you. Apologized conservative commentator Candace Owen. You want to frame that one? Open AI CEO Sam Altman feels awful about chat GPT leaking some users' chat history on Monday. Blamed an open source library bug for the snafu. He admitted the flaw, which allowed some users to see snippets of others' conversations with the uh, question and response bot. Quote, we had a significant, significant issue in chat GPT due to a bug in an open source library for which a fix has been released. And we've just finished validating Allman said, a small per percentage of users were able to see the titles of other users' conversation history. We feel awful about this. Because of the buggy code, chat GPT users won't be able to access most of their March 20 conversations. He says, OpenAI plans to follow up with a technical postmortem about the privacy breach, according to Altman. The formerly non-profit business did not respond to inquiries from the British tech journal to register. There's no word yet on when the fix will be released and when the post-mortem will publish either. The lead data scientist at Kaspersky, a digital lab, told the register that chat GPT users should read the small print and forget any illusion of privacy.
ChatGPT warns on login that conversations may be reviewed by our AI trainer, said a spokesman for Kaspersky, noting the web demo and the API for businesses use different interfaces, so from the very beginning, the user should have had zero expectations of privacy when using the ChatGPT web demo, unquote. Deadline Silver Spring, Maryland, Whole Foods Market is apologizing to a local woman who believes she was discriminated against because she was wearing a hijab. I was so confused and shocked. Buhit al-Jabri told the local TV station. She said she'd just finished paying for groceries in her neighborhood, neighborhood Whole Foods when she was singled out by a security guard who accused her of stealing. I'd given the receipt thinking he's doing his job, just like if you shop at Costco. What shocked me is that even though he had the receipt in his hand, he keeps insisting that I didn't scan the items, Al-Jabri said. He, keep yell he kept yelling in front of people. It was so humiliating, and so many people turned around. She called for help. Another employee confirmed she hadn't stolen a thing. He targeted me, she says, because of the way I dress. Quote, Whole Foods, We're truly sorry for the experience Miss Al-Jabri had in our store. The individual involved works for a third party and is not a Whole Foods Market team member. His actions were unacceptable. The store leadership team immediately reported the incident. The individual in question no longer works in our stores. Quote, the response from Whole Foods, it falls short of what we're looking for, said the Maryland director of the Council for Islamic, uh, American Islamic Relations. They're calling for Whole Foods to pull security footage and launch a full, transparent investigation. And Al-Jabri said, despite being a regular customer, she won't go back into the store again. She could wear jeans and a t-shirt. The BBC has halted filming on season 34 of Top Gear, popular show about cars, after presenter Andrew Freddie Flintoff was involved in an accident on the show's test track last December. Says BBC, we have sincerely apologized to Freddie and will continue to support him with his recovery. Unquote. Not Corey, Freddie. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week, same time. That's weird. On these same radio stations, and whenever you want it, that's weird. On your audio device of choice. And it would just be like Donald Trump actually being indicted this week. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh for doing... Uh, Yeoman work 
this week at WWNO. The email address for this program, yes, you can email me. And yes, I can read it at my leisure. You'll find that address. The uh, playlist of the music you heard here. And a chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Wow. Ask your dad. All at ha- all and much more at harryshare.com. And yes, I'm on Twitter. Till they drag me away. At the Harry Shearer. This show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.